0: welcome to the slightly evil podcast where we aim to arm you with non-obvious ways to think about bias and how you can circumvent it i'm your host kedar Ayer. today our guest is dr daniel stalder a social psychologist and the author of the power of context how to manage our bias and improve our understanding of others dr stalder is a professor at the university of wisconsin at whitewater he conducts research on social cognitive biases, individual differences such as the need for closure and cognitive dissonance theory including in political and close relationship contexts. In my conversation with Dr. Stalder, we stray beyond the contents of the book into his personal interests and also his opinion on how we rush to make judgments with current events due to social media. Dr. Stalder also shares his thoughts on how to create self-awareness in oneself. Dr. Stalder, it's great to be talking with you today. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to talk with you. So, the one thing that got me interested this year to talk to you was the release of your book, The Power of Context. The book, of course, for me, uh, resonated because, you know, we happen to be dealing with a number of issues um, around implicit bias. Uh, But I'm curious to know from you, why should people care about this issue of context?
1: Well, that's a big question. Context is obviously always around. We always exist in a context. All of our behaviors, everything we say, all the things that happen to us, Okay, whether we succeed in life or whether we're having a rough time and we're not always succeeding, maybe we lose a job. All of these things happen in a context. And yet when you observe people's behaviors and when you observe people's outcomes, too often observers they either forget about the context or they they underestimate the context, despite the fact that the context is there and despite the fact that the context or the situational factors are contributing what they're observing. When you see somebody speeding down the highway, it may not be a simple matter of the driver being a jerk. There may be something that the driver is speeding toward, like a hospital. Or when you see somebody who's lost their house, or you see somebody who's on food stamps, it might be natural for a lot of us to think, okay, this person screwed up in some way. This person is lazy, or they didn't make their payments on time. And yet, Especially when you're talking about economic forces, there is a context. There are situational factors that can help to explain the behavior. I'm not saying we should excuse drivers who speed. I'm not saying we should remove all responsibility from people who are you know, on welfare or people who are on food stamps. It's not about removing their responsibility. It's about fully understanding why they're behaving the way they are. It's fully understanding why they've ended up the way that they've ended up. And if you don't consider the context, if you don't consider the possible situational factors, or if you don't consider them enough, well, then your explanation will be incomplete. So it's not about excusing the people that we observe, it's more about fully understanding
0: them. And more often than not, you might guess that most people think that this whole question of context and making sense of it and making decisions based on understanding the complete context, you know most of the time I might assume that it's kind of happening in autopilot, right? For me, uh, I'm not really I'm not really breaking this down into the you know the different types of um, attributions I'm making and, and and decisions I'm making around certain judgments uh, that come to my you know uh, forefront during that moment. So why should you know why should I move from an autopilot something from an autopilot to a overanalyzed approach? Like how will that help me?
1: Well, first of all, you're correct. Most Evidence of the FAE, that is the fundamental attribution error, that's the bias that my book mostly talks about. Most evidence that we do under consider the context, most evidence does suggest that we're on autopilot, that we do it instinctively, that we do it very quickly and we don't even realize that we're doing it much of the time. But you're correct about that. And you're asking, why should we care or why should we try to take ourselves off autopilot? And I have about 17 really good answers to that because research has shown some of the negative consequences of letting our autopilot make our decisions for us. If you judge the homeless person or if you judge the person on food stamps as lazy, which is a very autopilot thing to say, then you'll be mistreating those people because in some cases they're working two jobs and they're not lazy. And if we could more fully understand Context. If we could more fully understand their behavior, then we can give them the assistance that they not only need but maybe deserve. If you're looking at a driver on the on the highway who's speeding, or maybe a driver has even cut you off, I have a lot of driving examples in my book. You might have noticed because a lot of anger happens on the road, not just road rage. I mean, road rage happens. It it doesn't happen as much as the media sometimes says it does, but but road rage does happen, and, and anger definitely happens. I believe. While driving is one of the most common places for anger to occur, one of the most common thoughts while driving is that somebody else, some other driver is being incompetent. And so if we could step back from that, if we could step back from our autopilot, if we can step back from saying, oh, this other driver is incompetent or this other driver is stupid or this other driver is being a jerk, if we could step back from those autopilot responses, then we're less likely to get angry on the road. And if we're less likely to get angry on the road, well, it's kind of obvious, and a lot of research supports it, that then there are going to be fewer accidents. There's going to be fewer cases of road rage, but there's just going to be fewer accidents. And by the way, if people are less angry, then their stress goes down, and that's healthy, too, at a very general level. So let's see. I said I had like 17 good answers. I think I've given you like two good answers.
0: I think you've given one really good one in the context of driving because I have a, a you know a personal story to share to do with me and my wife in the car and you know recently about a year ago, we had a baby and, uh, you know, just before we, of course, rehearsed through our mind, you know, how we would get to the hospital if, if there was an emergency and, you know, she had to deliver uh, the child. And, you know, we rehearsed through, you know, what, what would be the route we would take to the hospital on the road, which had the least amount of traffic at, you know, different times of the day. And, and if we got stuck in traffic, you know, what would be, you know, what sort of rules would we be okay to break to get to the hospital on time? And so, of course, none of that happened and, you know, um, we never had to go through any of the stuff that we had rehearsed mentally. However, many times subsequent to that... We have, you know, encountered other people on the road, you know, like you talked about, you know, cutting us over or jumping the signal before us or getting, you know, crossing lanes just before they have to stop at a signal to be the first person, uh, you know, taking off when it turns green. And, you know, we found ourselves, you know, calling the person a jerk and, you know, things like that. And especially my wife more than myself. And every time that happens, I would just instinctively say, you know, maybe the person's got a wife who's Delivering a baby, so I would just use that as an example, and and suddenly the rage would turn to you know a, a smirk on her face or you know a chuckle. And I'm curious to from to hear from your perspective. What are some techniques you found if you find people maybe taking things out of context and to get just get them to not it become you know something that they become defensive about. Uh, But something that, you know, makes them just lessen that rage a little bit.
1: So you're asking about advice to people to reduce their own
0: bias? Their emotional response to the bias, because that typically seems to be more of an issue, because that can just take things in quite extreme directions. Like, for example, you know, my wife will be there, you know, getting upset about somebody who cut her for 10 minutes of the rest of our journey, wherein it could have just been her thinking about her own situation and saying, you know, what if that person was going, rushing to the hospital for, you know, a delivery?
1: Well, what you just described is one approach. If you have the ear of the person you're talking about, if the person you're talking about cares what you think, then you can share all the what-ifs. You can share the what-ifs maybe, or what if this other driver had this situational factor or this situational factor. So that's just what you're saying.
0: What are some other ways, effective ways you found, uh, where people can maybe you know help people just realize this in real world sort of situations, um, while they're with others in in the company of you know uh, others? What are some effective ways to remind people that hey, don't rush into your judgment?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I kind of hear two different questions. One question is how do we reduce this bias? How do we get people not to commit this bias, or or if they've committed it, how do we get them to back off of it? And one of my best answers is to teach people about this bias. You know, give them a book to read or share what you know about the bias that I'm calling the fundamental attribution error. Learning about bias is one way to go. There are multiple ways to reduce the fundamental attribution error. One of them has to do with slowing down, slowing down our thinking, slowing down our judgments. And so in the case of you and your wife, And by the way, my brother and his wife did give birth on the way to a hospital. It happened. And my brother was driving like a maniac that night, and they still didn't get to the hospital in time. It's it's a long story, but that actually does happen. So when you're talking to somebody who is in the midst of getting angry at that other driver, there are some behavioral self-control exercises that can work. The proverbial counting to 10 as some research support where if you can just really literally force yourself to count to 10 before deciding whether that other driver is a jerk, okay, before deciding whether to get angry, that has some support for working. There are more and more articles and studies coming out about mindfulness. There are mindfulness practices and they, they may work in the moment or, or they may help if the person did the mindfulness exercise prior to going out into the car and prior to driving. And then I also read that regular exercise and regular eating helps our self-control. It helps our willpower so that if we're in a situation and we're trying not to get angry but we can't help ourselves, well, if we're doing the regular exercise and we're eating regularly, if we're doing those things that are good for our health anyway, well, that also makes us more able to control our anger in the moment. But then there are some other techniques to reduce bias. If you can ask people to explain their judgment, so if someone is upset at the other driver and is saying that other driver is a jerk, if you can ask them, this is not realistic, but hypothetically, if you could ask them to explain why they think the other driver is a jerk, if you can ask the individual to justify their answer, that reduces the bias because that slows them down and that causes them to have to think about what their reasoning is and that kind of snaps us out of autopilot, forces us to examine what our basis is. And, and in many cases, we realize we don't have a great basis. And so we start to back down from our bias and we start to back down from our anger. But the context in which you're asking me this question is about somebody you know, okay, like your wife or somebody who's close to you.
0: That's also interesting because, you know, you know them at a personal level. So, so I didn't, I hadn't read your book when I made the example because I you know a long time ago but it's still a a simple thing about you know just giving the person another perspective uh, which might just be the extreme opposite of what they imagine or they they judge the person for so if they say you know um, the, the person's an absolute jerk you could say hey you know what they're doing it for a good reason because his wife is you know delivering and it almost makes it very human and very relevant let's put it that way
1: yeah, I get it and if the person you're talking to trusts you, that that can all unfold very well. But if you don't have the greatest personal relationship with the person you're talking to, I mean husbands and wives they they can love each other but they can still irritate each other and you might have a coworker and you're trying to talk your coworker out of getting angry at some other coworker. I'm just trying to say that when you share that other perspective with this person, which is giving them possible situational factors to consider. They might get upset at you you're criticizing them they might think that you're taking the jerk side when actually you're not trying to take the jerk side you're just trying to calm your wife down because your wife's really upset
0: this is an interesting segue into some of the things around our work context because you bring up a very interesting point imagine a typical meeting scenario it's to decide budget allocation for the year 2019. You can imagine that, you know, uh, different department leads are having quite a heated conversation as to who should get more or less budget allocation based on, you know, their respective priorities. And, you know, there can definitely be a lot of finger pointing and things of that nature in such a discussion. How would you imagine fundamental attribution error playing out in today's sort of modern workplaces?
1: The FAE, the fundamental attribution error, can happen in so many ways at work, uh, including in the specific example that, that you're describing when you're, you're in a meeting and you and your colleagues or you and your coworkers are not agreeing with each other. So for so a very simple example, when someone doesn't agree with me and I, and I commit the fundamental attribution error, if someone doesn't agree with me, I might assume that they're holding negative intentions toward me. It's not just that they have a different opinion, it's that they have a negative opinion of me personally, and I start to take it personally, because I infer negative intentions where maybe there are no negative intentions. On the other hand, sometimes when we disagree with each other at work, we don't always do so politely, right? Sometimes the person who's disagreeing with me might start to get angry. All right, well, I don't like somebody getting angry at me, and so I might commit the fundamental attribution error, or I might you know, potentially commit the fundamental attribution error and think, okay, this worker who's getting angry at me, this colleague who's getting angry at me, not only do they have negative intentions toward me, but they're angry and aggressive people, and and I hate working at a place with angry and aggressive people. But in fact, maybe the person I'm working with is disagreeing with me, not because of a negative intention, but because of information that they're privy to. And maybe the person is getting angry because they had a really, really bad morning, or Maybe their supervisor is yelling at them and so their fuse is short and so now they're yelling at people at, at a department meeting and, and I'm not trying to excuse any of this bad behavior. I think that if you yell at people during department meetings that's bad behavior, I think. So I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior, but but if we can fully explore and we don't always have time in the moment to do this. But if we can just take a step back and allow for the possibility that there are multiple possible causes for this coworker's behavior, there are multiple possible causes for this colleague's angry behavior, then we're less likely to get angry. And that might help diffuse the situation because what often happens when one person gets angry, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's at work, if one person starts to get sarcastic or one person starts to get angry then the colleague might start to get sarcastic and angry and then it can escalate and so if at least one person can take a step back not jump to conclusions not assume negative intentions not assume that there's aggression behind the disagreement then there's less likely to be escalation and then the meeting can be more productive ultimately i mean if that's the goal to have a productive meeting then reducing the fae reducing the fundamental attribution error in a meeting can make the meeting more productive but my book is more about it's less about productivity my book is more about people feeling less stress and people getting less angry and people escalating conflicts to smaller degrees when there are misunderstandings going on
0: so here's an interesting problem for you you talked about people feeling less stressed Uh, one of the things that we typically find um, is you know most workplaces uh, typically in, in in today's context can be you know uh, high pressured environments you know there are quite aggressive goals uh, there are quite aggressive targets to be met it can sometimes be quite stressful so in that context how do you tell someone to slow down and make judgments calmly and and that's like telling uh, a person with anxiety disorder to calm down it does that's not the solution so i'm wondering how do you square that
1: in my book, I talk about primarily how to reduce the FAE in ourselves. And I think it's easier for me to tell myself to slow down than to tell my stressed colleague to slow down. Now, your, your question is, okay, well, how do you tell your stressed colleague to calm down? And I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I, I cover this at the end of one of my chapters where I say, what do you do if, you know, if your colleague is committing the fundamental attribution, or what if you do if your colleague is getting unjustifiably angry that's something. Maybe it's something you said or maybe it's something else that's going on at the meeting. And the very first thing I say in my book is, you know, maybe it's better not to try. Maybe you have to wait for the negative emotion to dissipate a little bit. Maybe you have to wait for the anger to decrease a little bit before you attempt anything like telling your colleague to slow down when your colleague wants to yell. However, I still did make some suggestions and they may not always work. And for anybody listening, I suggest making this decision for yourself, knowing yourself, knowing your colleagues, this is not advice that automatically is going to help everybody. But when I discussed this issue in my book, I mentioned that you want to communicate in some way to your colleague that... Okay, so I'm sorry. So I'm thinking of some different examples. So your example is that the colleague is getting unjustifiably angry at something and you're trying to tell your colleague to slow down.
0: Yeah, or even, you know, the the environment at work is just generally stressful for most people and hence they just tend to make more fundamental attribution errors because, you know, I would imagine you tend to make more when you don't slow down because in stressful environments you just keep trying to get as many things done in, you know, in a haphazard fashion. And so it just causes more FAEs to happen. And so how do you get either personally or just generally the environment to slow down? Because one of the the biggest things to avoid it is to just get everything to become stress-free. Like, how do you make that change from either an individual level or even at a group team level to just slow down so that everyone can make better decisions?
1: That's a great question. And if companies could figure out the answer to that, I think workers and employees would be so much happier. That's that's sort of a, an administrative level question, I think. So I could I could speculate about how to make the environment less stressful. And one of my speculations would be that if, if you're in charge at work and you have the ability to do this, and you probably don't because there are deadlines and that's why there's so much stress, but if you have the ability to do this, you could investigate some kind of company-wide mindfulness workshops where people are taught not to Specifically, the employee who gets angry all the time, but just as a general cultural change, employees are taught how to relax, how to engage in these mindfulness practices so that when they leave the workshop and they go back out into the heated environment, you know, that is their job. The mindfulness exercises that they practiced, you know, can help them. And then maybe I'm at a loss for how else, how else to do it at a company-wide level.
0: So that is definitely a better solution, I think, uh, compared to the other one that we know for sure doesn't work in organizations, which is the implicit bias training uh, that most companies mandate on their employees. At least the the, the, the evidence so far isn't there. I,
1: I agree that the implicit bias training evidence is not really there. I've read a little bit about it, and I've also read what some of the experts say about it. Uh, you you probably heard of the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. The Implicit Association Test was created by two or three researchers. Uh, Anthony Greenwald was one of them. I think Brian Nosek was another. And when they are asked, when Anthony Greenwald and Brian Nosek are asked what they think about implicit bias training, both of them say the evidence is not there, just like you said, even though they created the Implicit Association Test. And so, so they draw this distinction between the implicit association test accurately measuring people's implicit bias and then whether the implicit bias training that uses the IAT is actually effective. So they draw that distinction and the evidence, I agree, the evidence is not quite there for the implicit bias training. Or when the evidence is there, I've read that the benefits of the implicit bias training is short-lived. It can last for a few days or a week, but then at the one-month or two-month or six-month follow-ups, then it seems to have lost any of its effect, I can go one step further and talk about the IAT itself, the implicit association test itself, because there's a debate among some reputable and experienced social scientists. There's a debate as to whether the implicit association test actually actually does reliably measure implicit bias. And so if if you're focusing your implicit bias training on the IAT, if you're administering the IAT and you're discussing the results with your employees... First, if the IAT is not that accurate, okay, well, then the basis for your training is not there. But secondly, even if the IAT has some accuracy for some participants, it's unlikely that it has high accuracy for every participant. And so one of my recommendations, if a company is going to use implicit bias training, which might be better than nothing, it might be better than nothing because it at least raises these issues and it causes the employees to think about these issues, which maybe they otherwise wouldn't have. So let's assume that implicit bias training is is better than nothing. If you're going to do the IAT, if you're going to administer the IAT during the implicit bias training, then one of my recommendations is to provide a disclaimer, tell your employees, yes, we're giving you this test. Yes, it might measure your implicit bias, but not necessarily. There's not necessarily validity to this instrument, and that might diffuse some of the backlash because one of the reasons one of the reasons implicit bias training might not work better than it does is because some of the employees feel forced to be there. Some of the some of the employees feel like they're being accused of being racist when they don't think that's true and when it's actually not true. And so if you can add a little disclaimer to your use of the IAT, that might help to offset some of that backlash, to to diffuse some of that backlash. And there's a Harvard website called I think Project Implicit, and Project Implicit, although it administers the IAT and it talks about what the results might mean, there's a whole page, a whole disclaimer page saying we are not claiming that we can read your mind. We're not claiming that we have a valid instrument that's going to accurately reflect everyone's scores, and so, so I would recommend that a company that uses the IAT should follow project implicits lead and include this disclaimer, because that might reduce the possibility of backlash.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why I like your book, particularly in the context of explaining bias to someone is because it uses more personal situations and uh, not necessarily you know, professional contexts where, you know, it all gets very legal. And, you know, uh, most of these bias trainings are all around, you know, us judging each other on race and gender and things like that, which has been politicized beyond belief at this point. So uh, the examples that you cite are more, more approachable issues, more approachable ideas without getting heated about them, even in the discussion. And I find you also, however, that is the case, you tend to explain and re-explain yourself many times where you say oh you know I really meant is what I really meant is this Um, you know I I hope you didn't take it the other way and things of that nature where you're trying to you know avoid the reader also getting into the immediate snap moment of making uh, an FAE on your opinion. I'm just curious how was this process of writing the book it must it feels like it must have been a nightmare. But I'm curious to hear your perspective as a writer.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting that, that you picked up on that. that. That's cool that you picked up on that. I, I, would, I would start by saying that in, in most cases where I say, I hope you weren't thinking this or, or don't get me wrong, this is not what I'm trying to say. In most cases, many if not most cases, I actually wasn't trying to avoid the FAE by the reader. In most cases, I was just trying to accurately communicate the complexity of the results. I was actually trying to convey the complexity of life. I mean, there are a lot of issues that research tries to study. And there are a lot of popular press authors that that oversimplify those results. And they say, "Okay, well, this is what the results mean. And so I made a concentrated effort not to oversimplify the results. And so I would say, "Okay, well, this is what the results probably mean. But that's not to say that there couldn't still be this counterexample. And I also try to emphasize how the results are always on average. Social science studies samples of people, and we average the results. And so when I state a result, then sometimes afterwards I'll say, not that this result pertains to everyone, not that this result necessarily pertains to you or to all teachers. And that's just the truth about social science, that that social science is based on averages. However, to get to your question, yes, sometimes... Sometimes I was thinking about the reader's potential fundamental attribution, error. I was thinking that I'm saying something that a large portion of the readers might disagree with. And oftentimes, when someone disagrees with us, we assume there are negative intentions, or we assume that the person talking doesn't know what they're talking about, they're being stupid. But yes, in some cases, I was thinking, okay, I'm saying something that a lot of people aren't going to be happy hearing. And so I want to make sure that I'm really clear on this and make sure they know what I'm not saying, okay, that I'm not going to this place where you think I might be going. And it sounds like you're very aware of this situation. This can happen in person at a meeting at a company like you were alluding to earlier or if you're in a conversation with your spouse. It can happen that someone misjudges you, misinterprets what you say. It's, it can happen in person. But in person, you have the opportunity to address it right away to their face. Okay, here I'm writing a book. I don't have the opportunity to address anything to anyone's face. Okay, they're just reading what I'm writing. And so, in my opinion, it's doubly important for me to make these qualifications in my writing because it's all one-sided. They don't have the chance to complain to me. I don't have the chance to explain what I was trying to say. And so then, yeah, I try to take the opportunity to just explain things ahead of time and to point out the complexity of what I'm saying. And I am saying this. I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong. So you kind of asked whether that was difficult for me, and I would say, no, not really. I mean, it's. I guess it's time-consuming to make sure that you're accurately conveying the complexity. It's time-consuming to make sure you don't miss any corner of your book, okay, where you may have been giving the wrong idea or where somebody may be getting the wrong idea. So it might be more time-consuming, but otherwise it, it was not really that cognitively challenging for some reason for many years now. I'm just in the habit of doing that when I interact with people. However, emotionally, I maybe, I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it, but but emotionally I found it a little bit challenging because I truly wanted this book to reach as many people as possible. I, I didn't want to alienate any subgroup of people, okay, whether it's political or racial or your background might differ from mine. So I wanted, I wanted as many people as possible to read this book because I felt that There is potential for this book to help people and if i said something in the wrong way or if i said something without a qualification i was concerned that i might lose some readers and so i didn't want to make people feel bad. i didn't want to make people feel like i was judging them but i also didn't want to ruin the opportunity for them to keep reading because i think there's potential in this book and and i hope that doesn't sound conceited but i think there's potential for this book to help people and and so i wanted as many people to read it as possible
0: That's great. Uh, So you've touched a few things which are interesting and I want to get your opinion. Maybe it's not, you know, in your realm of expertise, but I still want to get your opinion because on the one hand, uh, you say at an individual level, uh, you know, we need to get more mindful about making judgments and things of that nature. On the other hand, uh, it appears, at least on the face of it, that technology is kind of at odds with this very... Principle of you know being mindful and taking a pause, and with the way we consume uh, news today, and you know the whole fake news syndrome at the moment, where do you think the problem is headed?
1: So when you say technology, I I think I, I think about social media, I think about Facebook and Twitter, and how we can very quickly share our views with lots of people at one time. But I also think of of technology as databases library databases or the New York Times database where you can find an article that was written, you know, in the whatever 70, 80, 90 years of the the newspaper. Would you like to just focus on the social media or can I talk about both?
0: I think both. I think they're all equally important because, you know, I can just dig up some dirt on you from 20 years ago and the context is no longer relevant.
1: Yeah, the context is no longer relevant. So so one of the things I wanted to say about the, the databases that are available is that, If the information you're getting from the database is accurate and relevant, so you just alluded to the fact that if it's 20 years ago, then maybe it's not relevant. But if the information you're getting is accurate and relevant, that's going to reduce bias. That's going to improve our judgments. We're not just going to go off half cocked about something we believe about somebody because the data exists. We just have to spend the time to look it up and then we can say whether or not this person is the way we think this person is. So I think technology can provide us with valid, relevant information to reduce our biases. On the other hand, not all online databases are equally valid. Some of the information that we can get from the Internet, even if they call themselves a database, even if they call themselves a news organization, sometimes the information we get from the Internet is not valid, even if it might be relevant on its face. And so in that case, and this is maybe what you were alluding to, if we are getting a lot of information from the Internet That's not valid. We may think we're making a more accurate judgment when actually it's the opposite. We're actually making a more biased judgment. And so one of the solutions, one of the potential solutions is that we have to teach ourselves. This issue has come up at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. There's an effort, there's a program going on to help students figure out when a website is trustworthy and when it's not, and to figure out when a piece of news is fake news and, and when it's trustworthy. And so one of the potential solutions is to teach ourselves, teach students, when we can trust the information that we're getting through this awesome technology that that we have. And that's obviously a lot easier said than done, but that is one potential solution. As far as the social media goes, wow, so you have one person with one opinion, and if it's a famous person or if it's a person with some celebrity, then that, that opinion can get circulated really, really, really fast. And so I guess all I can say at the moment is let's train ourselves and let's try to train our kids and our students not to share things too quickly that we cannot verify. Okay, let's try to reduce the phenomenon of the sharing of fake news. And let's not trust the things that get shared a lot, okay, until we can verify them with a mainstream news source or or some other database, I hope I'm not losing sight of your original question.
0: No, I think you're going in a very interesting direction. I would, you know, I would love if you can take it to some sort of hypothetical, you know, how could this be? Because, uh, you know, just hoping that people are less sharing and and being more cautious about the things that they retweet or uh, like uh, or things like that, because, you know, it literally takes an hour to propagate the worst. Right.
1: Well, I don't know if I have any concrete suggestion for a widespread solution that is across all potential users of Facebook or all potential users of Twitter. I suppose the only widespread suggestion I can think of is that the Twitter administrators, the Facebook administrators, the people in charge over there, that they continue to do more to filter or to oversee what's being shared. And I don't know how hard that is in terms of privacy laws or in terms of the technology. But if the people who run Twitter and Facebook can take more control over the fake news that's getting circulated, okay, well then that kind of takes it out of the hands of the users. That's the only practical suggestion I can think of on a on a widespread scale.
0: It's interesting you chose uh, you chose another human to police another human in the context of FAE? Because I would have imagined maybe you, you, you chose a computer to do that, which would be a less biased option.
1: Sure. If a computer can be programmed to filter out the potential fake news, if a computer can be programmed to do that in an objective way, that sounds better, I agree. But there's still going to be a human programming the algorithms, right? So the, the solution probably going to have to involve some human input, and therefore the risk of the FAE will never be reduced to zero.
0: So you've laid out the reason why we should be interested in the problem. We've explored a little bit about you know how this problem faces way more challenges in today's context than it perhaps did even 10 years ago.
1: You mean because of the social media and the technology?
0: Yeah, just because of the internet.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure... I'd have to reflect on that issue a little bit more. I'm not sure if it's worse now than it was 10 years ago. I mean, yes, the fake news problem is worse. And so maybe I should just say, yes, it's worse now than 10 years ago. But I'm also, I was also trying to point out that with our access to decades and decades of evidence, whether in the form of research studies or whether in the form of previous newspaper articles, we also have more opportunities than ever before to investigate claims and to try to validate or invalidate claims whereas you know 10 or 20 years ago if somebody made a claim we'd have to maybe just shrug our shoulders and say okay well i trust this person so i'm going to believe this claim as opposed to doing our own research on the internet
0: that's definitely true now we have a lot more foot soldiers to do the you know the investigations
1: yes we do have the foot soldiers and the fact checkers so it may be an empirical issue whether we're worse off now than we were 10 years ago but definitely in terms of the fake news sharing, that's that's obviously worse now and maybe that was your main point.
0: Yeah, but I think generally also um, just with the amount of information flow that most people are encountering and the number of different sources that they just come from Uh, on a daily basis you know just the number of people we interact with different sources that information comes to us how many times do i stop myself from just reading a a headline and moving on to actually stopping reading the headline and then reading the the nuance behind the headline because clearly the headline doesn't capture the right context
1: right so my book and other books like mine and, and other articles and popular press articles get written they're trying to communicate to the public that it matters that you shouldn't just read the headlines, that you should be more careful because we're in this age of fake news and all this social media. And I'm not super optimistic that's going to help, but I think it's better than nothing. We want to try to communicate this message to the public that you should try to slow down and not just read the article titles. But as a university professor, I have some opportunity to influence my students. And some of my colleagues and some of the administrators have the opportunity to influence our students and I did teach high school years ago, but I haven't taught high school for a while, and it would be even better to get to the students earlier than college. And so we can begin to motivate or we can begin to encourage our students and our kids you know, to get into that habit so that once they become voting adults, you know, then they're already in the habit and they don't have to be talked out of it. These are all very large orders, I, I understand, yeah.
0: But it's interesting you say that uh, to be done early on in a child's um, uh, educational life. Do you think there is a place to set some ground rules or even some ways to think in the household, uh, which is not, you know, sort of outside the school environment? You know, is there a role that parents can play, uh, you know, when in early childhood development years so that, you know, you form the right ways to think about... FAE and you know you know looking at different perspectives etc.
1: Sure absolutely parents have a great opportunity to help their kids not commit biases specifically not commit the mental attribution error. I have several answers I could share I'll I'll share some of them with you now. There's just the case of modeling there's just the case where the parents in their own actions in their own explanations and their own judgments of people they model not committing the bias and so if we're all on a car ride together, okay, I don't have kids, but if I had kids and my kids were in the car with me and somebody cut us off and the kids might say, what a jerk, I could say, well, you know, maybe not. Maybe this person is having a bad day and I can take that opportunity to, to model not getting upset and, and not committing the FAE. But then when my kids, here are some examples that are not about modeling. I can not let my kids get away with making a biased statement Right. If my, if my kid comes home and says, so-and-so pushed me, this person is a real aggressive jerk. Or if my kid comes home and says, this person is really stupid and the reason is because this person is a person of color. As a parent, I now have the opportunity to say, you know, can we talk about this? Can we think about the reasons for why you say what you say? Why do you think your classmate is a jerk? Why do you think this person is stupid just because of their race? That's called accountability. Research shows that biases are reduced, including the fundamental attribution error, if you can increase the perceiver's sense of accountability. And as parents, we have that opportunity to ask our kids to please explain themselves, to justify their answers, so to speak. And research shows that if you can increase the sense of accountability, that reduces the bias. So that's an exercise that parents could consider trying. You know, it's not necessary that all the kids are going to be open to that, but it actually doesn't matter if you make a person... Explain their answers. If you make a person explain their reasons for their judgments, then research shows that will that will reduce the bias. Here, here's another possibility. One of the reasons people commit biases is because of ego protection. In the case of the fundamental attribution error, it might be partly ego protection, and it might be partly about needing to feel in control. These are two of the main motivations for the judgments people make. They're they're trying to protect their egos or they're trying to feel like they're in control of things even if, even if they're not. And so if a parent, I mean, parents, we're talking about parents, and parents have a lot of control over their kid's environment, whereas when the kids grow up, parents have less control over that. And so while, while our kids are kids and we have more control over their environment and we have more control over their day-to-day, technically we can find ways to boost our kids' egos, and we can find ways to increase our kids' feelings of control so that they're less tempted to commit the biases that are designed to protect egos and increase feelings of control. If you can satisfy someone's need to feel good about themselves, if you can satisfy someone's need to be in control, then the biases become less tempting, the biases become less likely because the biases in part are designed to protect our egos, increase our feelings of control, and so it's just a matter of satisfying the need without students or kids committing the biases so i hope that makes sense
0: oh that definitely makes a lot of sense uh, this has been really fascinating um, you seem to have a lot of of course interest in the area you're a social psychologist what's what's cooking up in the future for you um are you considering another book or is there a particular research area that you're more focused on than others what can you tell us about the type of work that you're doing and what can we expect from you um, you know, later this year or next year?
1: Well, I have no plan for another book. The The book that I wrote was challenging. It was time-consuming. I had some family health issues that were happening at the same time, and so it was a long time in coming. I, I wasn't sure the book was actually ever going to come out, and so it eventually came out, and I'm really grateful about that. So I have no, I have no plans for another book. I, I mean, I have some book ideas, but they're not very defined yet. I have some book ideas for for teaching. I have some book ideas in social psychology, but they're kind of ill-defined right now. The research that I do is primarily on biases and it's also on cognitive dissonance theory. Cognitive dissonance theory, I briefly mentioned it a few times in my book. In fact, I had a chapter in my original plan for my book, I had a chapter that was going to deal with cognitive dissonance theory, and then it turned out that I didn't have room for that chapter and it didn't quite fit with the rest of the theme of the book. and so. So I suppose if I were to write another book, I might try to get that chapter back into it on cognitive dissonance theory. So I do research on biases and cognitive dissonance theory and, and individual differences. And that may have come across in my book because I talked a lot about how we're all different from each other. And just because one person is this way doesn't mean other people will be that way. And so that's the research I'm doing right now on, on biases and dissonance and individual differences. And, and I work with undergraduates sometimes. and. And we do research together and sometimes we present at conferences and so that's that's part of my life as a professor i teach and i do research and sometimes i do research with students
0: individual differences um it somehow seems to be that in certain circles uh, we attribute most things to group identity but at the same time we all kind of know that every one of us is different how do you again you know uh, square these two things that are innately human to belong to you know a group and identify as part of a group but also then to sort of behave at an individual level and to take into account individual differences when it comes to success and when it comes to all sorts of other things um, that you know we can't be essentially the same as the rest of the group
1: so we all do belong to groups and we obviously are all individuals, but the degree to which we self-identify with a group greatly varies. Some of us strongly identify with our gender or our self-identified gender. Some of us strongly identify with our racial group. Some of us strongly identify with our occupation, but not all of us do. For some of us, we don't think a lot about our groups. We belong to groups, but but they're not really part of our self-identity. That's That varies a lot. Part of what I was trying to say when I talked about the research that I do is that Because humans are so different from each other, researchers have to consider that in studying them. We have to consider the fact that even if we find a research result, it's only on average. It may not pertain to every participant. And so if we want to learn more, then we have to go into that topic a second time and we have to measure the participants' individual differences and see if they can explain why some people don't respond the same as
0: others. So this is very fascinating. So you're actually talking about doing research on the FAE that researchers might have while studying their results. I
1: actually haven't done that research yet. I I do in my book talk about cases of researchers and professors and social psychologists committing the fundamental attribution error. But that would be really hard to study. I think it would be really hard to get college professors to to be participants in a study.
0: I'm curious to know um, who would you recommend to perhaps interview who's maybe released a n- recent paper around bias that you think is, has got a different set of results and maybe not something that we already know.
1: So I'm not
0: as up, up
1: to date on the current bias research. There's, there's one article I discovered about color blindness. This is like a 2017 or 2018 paper. I'll try, to, I'll try to say this quickly. If you are a white person, and if you say, I try to be colorblind, okay, and so when I look at other people who are white or black or Hispanic, I, I don't notice their race, okay, I try to be colorblind. And the microaggression researchers would say, wow, when you claim to be colorblind, that's microaggressive. That's kind of prejudiced, okay, because you're not allowing for different backgrounds and the different racial experiences that, that different people have. The the point I'm getting to is that I found a study that said if you view the world in a multicultural lens versus if you view the world in a colorblind lens, which is better? In which case do you actually become more racist or more prejudiced? And for the last couple of decades, most of the research has been saying that if you have a multicultural lens, if you see the cultural and the racial differences in the people that you interact with, a multicultural lens will reduce prejudice. It will lead to less prejudice. So the reason I thought of this article is because it showed the opposite. It showed that a colorblind perspective actually led to less prejudice. The lead author is Lee Wilton. And the title of the article is Valuing Differences and reinforcing them, multiculturalism increases race essentialism. And I can translate that to mean that the, the multicultural lens actually may increase race-based prejudice. It's a 2018 study, and when I had time, I was going to investigate the pushback on this, because there's going to be pushback on this article, even though this article was published in a pretty good journal.
0: Also, another thing um, to wrap up, I want to get your point of view on uh, what can listeners uh, read in addition to your book? So as a follow-up, you know, if someone's read your book and now they're aware, you know, what's next? What would you recommend they do next? You know, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, sort of maybe doing some of these mindfulness practices uh, to kind of form a habit of being able to manage and improve ourselves. Is there anything else that you would advise listeners to read or you know get familiar with, along with reading your book?
1: Sure. First of all, regarding mindfulness, I'm not an expert on it. I've read some meta-analyses. I've read some review papers about mindfulness. And one of the things I want to quickly mention is that mindfulness is not necessarily for everyone. There's a small subset of participants who engage in the mindfulness practice, and it doesn't psychologically go well for them. They They need to stop doing it. So... So mindfulness is not for everybody, even though it's worth trying. Then I also want to mention that at the end of my book, I have like 15 different strategies to reduce bias in addition to some of the ones that you and I have talked about. And so that's worth checking out because each of those strategies has several references that I provide. And so you can read up on the references to further understand the strategy. Uh, But to your more basic question, there are a couple of books that I could recommend. Uh, There's a book called MindWise by Nicholas Epley, it's one of the best bias books out there. I, I read a lot of bias books as I was preparing to write my book and as I was writing my book. And of all the bias books out there, I'd say MindWise is probably the best. And some of the points that Epley makes are similar to mine in terms of not thinking we can nonverbally decode people, not thinking we can read people's minds just based on how they behave. And another book, it's a little older, it's about 10 years old, but it's a strong book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And that's written by two social psychologists, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. And Elliot Aronson is a big name in social psychology. He's been around for a long time. And he got his start as a graduate student in cognitive dissonance theory. And this book is a lot about cognitive dissonance theory and how it's hard for us to accept our mistakes. And so wrapping this back or winding this back to what you and I started talking about in terms of the fundamental attribution error, the fundamental attribution error is technically a mistake. And so if you can read this book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, it's possible you might learn how to acknowledge your mistakes. And if we can acknowledge our mistakes, then we might be more or less likely to commit the fundamental attribution error You know, as well as many others
0: mistakes oh that's a great way to end uh, if we can only acknowledge our mistakes um, thank you so much for joining this conversation Dan it was a pleasure talking to you today
1: Same here these were some very interesting questions I appreciate being able to talk about it
0: this podcast is brought to you by Gap jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025 if you fear that bias is impacting your organization gap jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it Visit gapjumpers.me to learn more. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil podcast.